super nice to be able to hear from one of our friends in the community. So thanks, Pastor Peter. For those of you who are kindly and generously texting me messages right now, love you. I'm going to respond to them afterwards, okay? Today we might be uh, uh, introduced to, we're going to be introduced to what might be the most powerful, most transformational, certainly the most inspirational leadership principle on the planet. And every single leader that you know that you don't respect ignores this principle. You can lead without it, uh, but you will not be a leader worth following without this principle. And this uh, ground-shaking, revolutionary, no-one-saw-it-coming concept explains why, in part, a first-century Jewish cult following a crucified leader with no territory, no military, and no authority, not only survived, but thrived in the first and second and third centuries, and were eventually embraced by the very empire that tried to eradicate it, to exterminate it. And we've said throughout this series, I'm sure you can remember this, that Jesus came to the world to introduce something brand new. Something brand new to the world and for the world. That, that what Jesus came to introduce was a radical departure from everything that was in place. It was a radical departure from the ways of the kingdoms of this world, in, in, including the ways in which the world exercised authority and leadership. So on the religious front, it meant that Jesus had to replace everything that was in place. Because the religious systems of every century and even the religious systems of this current century are oftentimes built on the very structures of the kingdoms of this world. In other words, they're all top-down. But the value system and the movement that Jesus came to begin and to launch would actually be upside-down. Okay, uh, back to our story that we've been going on with. Now, the most disruptive, the most controversial miracle during Jesus' ministry was when he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. It's a pretty famous story. If you grew up in church, no doubt you've heard about it, or at least you know something about it. Even if you didn't grow up in church, this story might have leaked out in, in, uh, to you through so many of the cultural references. And the reason that this, this event was so disruptive and the reason that it caused so much controversy was because Lazarus was a well-known man in the village of Bethany. Not only was Lazarus well-known in the village of Bethany, he was known outside the village of Bethany. But the thing that made this cause such a stir wasn't that Lazarus was dead. He was like dead, dead. He was already entombed and embalmed dead. They had already had the funeral dead. It's not a matter of, oh, I'm not so sure if he was really dead, kind of dead. They had actually sung the songs and paid the bills, kind of dead. Now, the multi-day funeral event that was, was just sort of sweeping up when Jesus finally shows up, it's one of the most astounding narratives in the whole New Testament. And you should totally go and read it yourself. When Jesus finds out his buddy Lazarus is sick, his guys all sort of stand up and say, all right, let's go to Bethany, because surely you are going to go and heal your buddy Lazarus. And Jesus says, come on, sit down. 
we're not going yet. And they're all like, well, this is so disturbing. And then Jesus shows up at the end of a funeral and then raises a man that has already been entombed. It was such a big deal that Bethany actually became a tourist attraction. People went to Bethany all trying to do a Lazarus sighting. And the story spread all over the place, and it spread quickly. No surprise, right? So in John 11, start at verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the story shot from Bethany all the way to the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is like a supreme court of the land in first century Israel. These were the official representatives of Israel to Rome. These guys spent most of their time hanging out around the temple, uh, being in charge of stuff politically in relationship to the civil law, religious law, religious practice. Nicodemus, who we met last episode, was a member of the Sanhedrin. And no doubt Nicodemus was at this meeting. This is what they came to in the meeting. They said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. And in our vernacular, we talk about Jesus doing miracles. But these guys, they were clued in. Jesus was not simply performing random miracles about the country. Jesus was performing signs. And a sign points to something. These guys understood what Jesus was pointing to. He was pointing to something entirely new. This was not uh, that he was pointing, the stuff that he was pointing to seemed to be like it wouldn't be under their power and their control. And here's what they concluded about that. It's so arrogant. Verse 48, it says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. You go, well, what's the problem with that? What's the consequence? Because they understood something that we miss. If everyone follows him and everyone believes in him, eventually the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Because what Jesus is introducing is radically new. And if everybody follows Jesus, nobody will need us anymore. And they won't even need the temple. They understood what we frequently miss. That Jesus came to replace everything that was in place. And in the end, that's exactly what he did. And yet, even in the 21st century, we have a tendency to hang on to much of what Jesus came to replace. Verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So, so Jesus found out about this. How did he find out about this? Well, we don't know that for sure. But here's a hunch. Remember that Nicodemus guy? He was at the meeting. I think Nicodemus got word to Jesus and said, hey, they're after you. So verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Now, Judea is the region where the temple is. Judea is the region where most of the religious leaders lived. It would have been easy for him to hightail it back up to Galilee, but he stayed in the region of Judea. 
but he became more covert in his action, in his teachings, and in his miracles. And the reason that he stayed in Judea was because Passover was just around the corner, and Jesus wanted to celebrate Passover in the city of Jerusalem. But he had to be careful, lest he be arrested. So the religious leaders put spies all around the city of Jerusalem. They were were at the gates watching, and they were at the different places where people would gather, where they would collect together watching. And, And all around the region, they had people watching, spies, looking for Jesus, looking for an opportunity to arrest him and keep him away from the crowd. So a few days before Passover, Jesus is still trying to, you know, quietly make his way around the city, just far enough away from the city to not cause any problems, but then still at the last minute to be able to enter the city for Passover. So during his wanderings, he goes back to Bethany. That's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And and, uh, John records it like this. He says, uh, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. So you see that? Lazarus is a tourist attraction whom he had raised from the dead. This is how desperate the group got, okay? Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Why? Because he's evidence that something new is happening. He's evidence that this is a real thing. It's evidence that Jesus is just about to overwhelm the entire religious system if they don't do something to stop him. Verse 11, For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now this is an important point. It's not the point of the message, okay? But I don't want you to miss this. If you have abandoned Christianity, if you have lost faith, if you have walked away for some reason, because that version of faith that you grew up with was all about just having faith in faith, and you just have to believe, and you had to check your mind at the door. Please leave your your intellect outside. No science allowed in here, please. Just believe, man. I want you to know that first century Christianity, the original version, was not about believing in belief. It was evidence-based. The reason that people began to follow Jesus was not faith. The reason that they began to follow Jesus was something they saw. Christianity from the very beginning has been an, an informed faith. You become a Christian by faith, but you don't become a Christian because of faith. So here again, we see evidence of the fact that seeing led to believing. So please don't forget that. And if you have ever left your faith because you thought that Christianity was just about faith in faith, I'm so sorry. I think you might have left unnecessarily. That was never the original intent. That is not the original version. But John's not done here, so it goes on. Verse 12, the next day the great crowd uh, that had come for the festival, and that is Passover in Jerusalem, they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So the point of all this is that everybody's talking about Jesus. It's possible that right now, Jesus might have been more popular than Passover itself. People in the city 
are looking for him. People on the outside of the city are following him. And the emotion is building and, and beginning to crescendo, you know, building and building. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And they had no idea. 2,000 years later, all around the world, the world that is much bigger than they could have even begun to imagine, the whole world has gone after him. So the stage is set. Spies are in Jerusalem. There are expectant fans massing both inside and outside of the city. And Jesus and his guys finally begin as Passover is getting closer and closer. They're just a couple of days out. And they finally decide to make their way to the city. The tension is high. The drama is high. Pilate has put extra military in the city, all around the city, because Passover was always a time when troublemakers make trouble. And over the past years, there had been many zealots who claimed that they were the Messiah. So much tension. So many people. The other thing you've got to remember, try to picture this. Jerusalem is a large city by ancient standards. The people are streaming into the city from all around the country. Thousands and thousands of pilgrims from all the region, all streaming into the city. And Jesus and his guys, they, well, they join the crowd. And they're on the road. They're headed up to Jerusalem. That's where our story takes place. So we jump in now. Uh, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and his disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid again. Again. Which means he had already had this conversation with them at least once. But he wanted to have it with them one final time. And he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen. So they're on this road. And there are people in front and there's people behind. People uh, all around snapping selfies, kids trying to get his autograph. Jewish moms are checking to make sure, are you still single? Because I've got a beautiful daughter and maybe, maybe you'll be a good fit. And people are asking Peter and John questions and there's just so much commotion. They all want to get to Jesus. And Jesus takes his guys and he, you know, steps off the road. And he goes to a rest stop. Maybe it's an orchard. And he sits down under a, a, a sycamore fig tree. That's kind of his tree now. He's made it famous. I'm making a bunch of this part up right now. The, the, the people are still streaming towards Jerusalem. And they're waving and they're looking and they're herding their animals. And Jesus wants to have one final conversation with the guys before they get into Jerusalem. And here's what he says. Verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. Verse 34, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. You got it? And they're sitting there thinking, what's he even talking about, right? This is unimaginable. We've got all the momentum. 
Jesus, you're more famous than the Beatles. We've got one crowd with us and we've got another crowd waiting for us. Word has already reached Jerusalem that you are on your way. There is no way in the world that something bad is going to happen to you. Besides, they know the guy that they're with, Jesus, just raised a guy from the dead. Not just dead, but the dead, dead guy. An embalmed and entombed fully dead guy. Not just a mostly dead guy. So Jesus, <laughs> I don't know what you're so worried about. I wish you could just see things from our point of view. Something great is just about to happen. We don't get what you're talking about, all right? No comprenez-vous. Nice little talk, though. All done. And so they stand up, and they head back to the road, and they re-enter that flow of traffic, and a couple of guys hang back for a second. They say, Jesus, we need to talk to you for just a quick minute, okay? Verse 35. Then. Right. Like right then. As soon as Jesus has finished his speech about all the bad things that are going to happen to him. Right then, verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we met them a couple of episodes back, come to him, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's for sure, like too bad about the spitting and that flogging and dying and whatever else it was that you were saying. That totally sounds horrible. But anyway, we need to ask you a favor right then. And we can kind of laugh, but it is more than a little bit like our prayers, isn't it? Heavenly Father, you're so great. You made some pretty amazing stuff. But about my job, right? God, you, you are so great, but now let's, let's get it back to being about me. What, what an emotional speech that this must have been for Jesus. And that was just a short version he knows what he is heading into. And they act, they behave like they don't even care. Can you do us a favor? I want something from you. Graciously, Jesus says, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And they kind of look over their shoulders. They don't want the other guys to hear this. Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other one at your left in your glory. I mean, after the rejection, the spitting, the flogging, the death, I don't know what all that's about, but after all that other stuff, after you pull off that rabbi robe and start kicking it Messiah style, when you are sitting on the throne, can we get the two best, most powerful spots? We know we can't be number one, because Jesus, you're number one. That's right. Jesus, you're number one. You're number one. But if we could share spots two and three. Well, that would be sweet. Can we have positions of high authority in your coming kingdom? Because after all, we know that's where this is headed. Patient Jesus says to them, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Because he knew, and they would soon know, that the gory would precede the glory. And they respond back, no, 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 no. We can handle it. You just tell us what we need to do. We are with you, Jesus. But they were wrong. 
And we'll get to that part of the story in a couple of weeks. Jesus is arrested, and before he has dropped a single drop of blood, they run. They all run. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And this doesn't mean that they were offended on behalf of Jesus. Like, how dare you ignore the man, uh, the pain that this Jesus was just speaking about. It's more like, hey, wait a minute. What about us? We want to be number two and number three. Get out of my way. I was here first. So, the disciples are just hours away from entering the city of Jerusalem, and they are having a big argument over about who is going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom, in Jesus' movement, in his ecclesia. And if I'm Jesus, which I am not, I think I kind of roll my eyes and think maybe I picked the wrong guys. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, I think you guys need a little bit of a refresher class, all right? So if you're a Jesus follower, if you are a Christian, this is for you. If you are in ministry, like me, this is really for me. And if you're not a Christian, it's our failure to embrace what Jesus is about to say that might be part of the reason that you left faith to begin with. Here's what he said. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And the Greek text here is, uh, it uses two words that are rarely ever used, which means that the author is trying to make a very specific point. His point is this. He says, guys, you know how authority works. The person at the top has all the resources and all the power, and all the leverage flowing up to them. And then they leverage their power for their own benefit, for their own perspective, regardless of what it means to the people under them. You know how that works. And the twelve are sitting there going, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, we know exactly how it works. That's why we're asking. That's why we want to be at the top of your kingdom. We want to be on top. We know exactly how it works. Because when you're on top, you get more stuff than the people on the bottom. When you're on top, you leverage your authority to get from the people further down what you want, what you need. We want other people to obey us. Yeah, Jesus. We know exactly how it works. And Jesus looks at them. And I think through them, Jesus looks at us, if you are a Christian. And I know he looks at me because I'm the pastor. These next four English words or these next five Greek words are so powerful. They are words that that we must take to heart. But more than that, these are words that we have to take to work. These are words that many of us need to take home. Here's what he says. You guys know how it works? Yep. 43. Not so with you. Not so with you. 
What I'm introducing to you guys is brand new. What I'm introducing is completely different. What I'm, what I'm introducing is a departure from the kingdoms of this world that, that where resources and power and authority, they will all be managed differently in my ecclesia. If you're going to be a part of my ecclesia, if you're going to be a part of my movement, you've got to get this right. Let's make this clear right up front. Let's get this straight. Power and influence are not for the power and the influential. Because I'm flipping it. I'm flipping it upside down. In my movement, power and influence will be used for a different purpose and with a different person in mind. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, pause. So he's probably looking at each of the guys. He says, okay, you want to be great? Who wants to be great? We already know. They already said they wanted to be great, right? It's not wrong to want to be great. It's not bad to want to aspire to be an official or, or a leader. If you want to be someone with influence within your home, within your society, within your business, that's great. Go for it. We need more people like you. And then Jesus says, now, now that your hand is up, right, wanting some more authority and some influence, here's what you need to know. If that is what you want in my kingdom, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. For us, it's a concept. For them, they knew servants. Many of their families had servants. You think of Matthew, the tax collector. He probably had a bunch of servants. And Jesus said, if you're going to be great in my movement, then you must take the position of a servant. That is, you go to the, the back of the line. To which they thought, well, well, that's no fun. And Jesus says, but I'm not done. Verse 44 and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. At least servants get paid. Slave of all. That's, that's like the back of the back of the line. And they're quiet. Maybe like you're feeling quiet right now. I hope that nobody I know is listening to this message right now. I, ho I hope that nobody else can, can call me on this later. So it's, you know, eyes down, look away. I don't think he's talking about me. But Jesus is looking at his disciples. You should have known by now that my movement, my kingdom is an upside down kingdom. I've come to replace all that is in place. Not only the kingdoms of this world, but even the religious structures of this world. And before they could object, verse 45, for even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. My opinion, I think every Christian should memorize this statement. I think every Christian leader should memorize this statement and not just know it. I think if we got this right, something would happen in our communities. If we got this right, I know something would happen in our families. But this is Jesus saying, let me take away all your excuses. I'm your leader. Even I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many.
And they had no idea what was coming. They had no idea that he meant that he was going to actually lay down his life. And soon they would be confronted with this overwhelming, this powerful, transformational idea. Jesus was the king who came to reverse the order of things. He would be the king who would lay down his life for his subjects. And he would say to his subjects, I'm not asking you to lay down your life for me. I'm asking you to lay down your lives for one another. And the amazing thing about this, these guys got it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four Gospels right after John is the book of Acts. And Acts, it tells us what happens after the resurrection. So in the book of Acts, we learn about a problem in the early church. Do you know what the first problem in the church was? These disciple guys are spending too much time serving food to widows. They can't get them to take a break and to teach everybody else what Jesus taught them. Uh, so, so Peter, Peter, could, could you lead us in a Bible study? And he goes, no, I'm feeding widows. I don't want my heavenly father to think I've gotten too big for my britches. And so I'm looking for jobs that I could do that need to get done. The most basic kind of jobs. Those are the ones that I'm going to focus on. And feeding widows here in Jerusalem, well, that seems to be one of the most needed things right now. But no one else had been with Jesus. They were the ones who needed to explain why it was so important to feed the widows. Like, how, how does this all fit with, within the teaching of Jesus? They, they were, they, those guys were reluctant to not go to the back of the back of the line. The, the teaching of Jesus connected with them and they got it. But I'm pretty sure that they didn't get it during that little roadside speech. I think they got it just a little bit later on. And we're going to look at the next couple of days in their life over the next, kind of, the next couple of episodes here. But the next day they get to Jerusalem. They finally get to what is called an upper room. And they are having the Passover meal together. And they had just come through a parade of people who had all been shouting, Hosanna! 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 That's all adoration. Okay, That's all recognizing him publicly as the Savior. You are the one who saves us. Save us. And the people are essentially proclaiming at that moment, Jesus, Messiah, in Jerusalem, on Passover. And I cannot exaggerate the emotion or the, the controversy that they created in the city of Jerusalem by doing that. These guys, the disciples, are now famous. They're celebrities. And now they're, they're together. They're celebrating Passover. And they're starting to imagine what the next day will hold for them. Because surely, Jesus is just about to proclaim himself king. And they're eating the Passover meal. And Je Jesus is saying some odd things. And Judas went off to go run an errand. And no one really understood. And then suddenly, Jesus stands up. And he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And when he did, they panicked because they knew what he was about to do. They panicked because none of them had thought to even wash their own feet, let alone anyone else's feet. 
None of them had thought in their heads, maybe we should get a servant to wash feet. They were so excited. They, so much going on. It's such a, a heady moment. This, this is once in a lifetime. We're so excited. And suddenly, Jesus stands up and he takes off his rabbinic robe. But he doesn't proclaim himself Messiah. He puts a towel around his waist. And they were, they're thinking, okay, okay. Whew, we totally forgot to do this, okay? But there's no way in Hades, that's the way they talk, there's no way in Hades that we're going to allow you to wash our feet. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. But he did. Washing feet takes a while. So washing 12 pairs of feet takes a long time. I think they probably had a hush that filled the room after Peter finally settled down. This water dripping. Drip. Splash. The rub of the towel. As Jesus went foot by foot and toe by toe and ankle by ankle, Jesus washed all their feet and they were completely humiliated. Think of this. They knew what those hands could do. They had seen Jesus do things with his hands that no one would ever believe. And there he was with those hands washing their feet. Jesus took this opportunity to illustrate that roadside chat. And when he finished, he stood up, put back on his rabbinic robe, wiped his hands, sat back down at the table. I don't think any of them said a word. Then here's what he said to them. What he said to me, to you, if you are a follower of Jesus. Verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. I am your teacher. I am your Lord. Verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then he restates this idea that the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In verse 16, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. And we just cleared up a moment ago, who is the master? You know it. And I just confirmed it. Teacher and Lord. You're not better than me, are you guys? Peter, Peter. Are you better than me? No, sir. John. John, are you, are you better than me? No, sir. Well, if you're not better than me, then you can never use who you are as an excuse to choose not to serve the people around you. Because I just served you, not even as a servant, but as a slave. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. When you start thinking you're kind of a big shot, you just need to go and find some more feet to wash. Don't, don't you forget this night. And they didn't. In the years following the resurrection of Jesus, the persecuted church did just that. The mindset of, Others first in the first century church was so strong, so much out in front of all that they were, that it was actually appalling to the Roman and Greek cultures that celebrated strength, 
and victory and conquest, power and control. The idea that people went to other people first, that they would leverage what they had for the sake of others, that that instead of using their power to become more powerful, they would use their power to empower other people. That whole way of being was appalling. It was completely upside down. But over time, as it was witnessed and as it was experienced, it became appealing. The people flocked to the Christian movement, that Jesus movement, and Christians refused to abandon the sick people. Christians refused to abandon the villages when the plagues swept through and just took almost everybody in the villages out. They refused to run because Christians were not afraid of death. They took an abandoned and exposed children, their compassion and their their generosity and their others' firstness, their willingness to give and to distribute and recognize the dignity and equality of other people was staggering. And eventually it became contagious. Like an airborne disease, Christianity spread all over the empire and even over the borders into the barbarian tribes. And against all odds, a Jewish cult with a crucified leader, with no territory, no military, and no authority, was eventually embraced by the empire that set out to destroy it. If you are a Christian, that's your story. Those are your people. It worked once. It could work again. What what if we just do that? It's, It's not intuitive. It's not natural. It's so upside down. It requires me to look for an opportunity to go last. But let's be honest. When you see it, you admire it. When you see it, you seek it. And if you've ever had the opportunity to follow someone who modeled it, you respect them. And Christians, into one, we are called to it. And when it comes to dealing with work, when it comes to dealing with home, when it comes to dealing with my neighbors, as we try to figure out what this looks like in our world, and so particularly at this time, I think it all boils down to a simple question. It's a simple question that we should ask in every single environment and in every single relationship. It's a question that as a leader, I get asked frequently, but I don't ask often enough. And if you're the leader, if you're the boss, If you're the head, if you're the one in charge, you probably get asked this question a bunch. And you probably also don't ask it enough. But in the upside-down world that Jesus introduced into this world, it's a question that those of us with more authority and more power, more influence should ask the most. And here's the question right here. How can I help? How can I help? How can I leverage me for you? And as a Jesus follower, we should ask this question the most. We should ask this question of the people who least expect it and perhaps feel that they least deserve it. And if you do, you will be like your Father in heaven who looked down on this self-centered, me-first world and asked, what can I do to help? 
And then he sent his son, Jesus, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he looks us in the eye and he says, now, Graham, now you just lost your excuse. Go do for others what I've already done for you. Imagine what would happen in your family. Imagine what would happen in our community. Imagine what would happen in our nation if, if, if just the Christians would fully embrace this idea. It rocked the world once. Perhaps it could change the world again. You have been called to such a time as this. Kind Father, thank you for your, your gift to us, your understanding of what it is to be like us. You understood how much help we were going to need, and so that's why you sent Jesus to help us, to save us from where we were. And as we try to figure out not, not just what it means to do what you say, but to be like you were, to, to enter that upside-down kingdom, to live as you have called us to live, the freedom that we can experience, the hope that we will engage with is exactly what we talk about in, in our road trip statement that we, in, in our earnest pursuit of Christ, we are being made into one. And as we do that, we find hope and freedom and the love of Jesus. This is the truth that you set before us, that as you make us into one, this is what we discover. This is who we become, your children, and we live in a new world. And then we take others to glimpse that world by the way that we behave towards them, around them. As we agree together that we will be as you have called us to be, you change this world currently into the world that you describe. And Lord Jesus, that is something that I want to be a part of. And I know that many of my friends, they also want to be a part of this. And so we say, Holy Spirit, speak to us and give us insight. What might I do? Who can I help? What can I do that will make a difference in this time, in this season, not someday later in the future, right now, this afternoon, what can I do? How can I help? How can I serve someone and display and live and experience the life of Christ? Oh God, I pray that you would help us to be engaged in this world that we live in, in a season full of fear and, and panic and anxiety, and we don't know what to do or where to go. In this season, God, I pray that you would give us insight, courage, boldness to be the church. One of the best things about not meeting together in this building is that we emphasize again the fact that we are the church exterior to this building. Help us to connect with each other, to plan, to strategize, to work in such a way that we would point people back to you. Cause us to pray for our, 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 our town, our, our region, our province, our country, our world as we face this global pandemic. We don't want to pretend like it's not happening. We want to respect what we've been asked to do, but Lord Jesus, we want to make a difference in this season. How can I help? Give me guidance, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
For those of you who are uh, regularly part of Into One, you know that we have emphasized our story, the road trip, as sort of the guidance for how we do what we do. And so we say as we are on this road trip in earnest pursuit of Christ, we are being drawn together into one and we find hope and freedom in the love of Jesus. And one of the things that we do on this trip is to periodically stop for a moment. Notice something that's worth noticing. Maybe get out of the car, take a picture, and look at it. And we call those moments landmarks. And I have a landmark that I wanted to... uh, bring to your attention today. There are times and seasons when things show up. So we're going to do the first new landmark that we've done in a long time. We're going to call this one Servant Heart. For someone who was able to see beyond where they were to think where we are. And we wanted to recognize that person today. And so I have our next landmark here. We want to dedicate this one to a guy who's not expecting it at all. But for someone who stepped up and did what needed to be done, even though we didn't know it needed to be done, who has helped us in the last months um, cross a desert we didn't know how to cross, who gave us time, expertise, energy, equipment, who led a movement for us. That is why we are here today. So with this landmark today, On behalf of the steering committee of Intuone Community Church, we want to officially recognize and thank Jason Hanna. And some of you won't even know who Jason Hanna is because he sits in the background for so much. But he's right here making sure that you can see this moment right now. He has initiated our video ministry and guided it and and brought it to life and um, so we wanted to, to take a, a moment to, to thank him. And normally we have a big kind of gathering up here, and we can't do that gathering. But I would like you to at least see Jason, who is very thankful at this moment that I'm offering him this opportunity to put down the headphones for a second, walk up here, and at least smile for the camera. You have to come on the other side of the camera. Now, Jason, that's your cue. Not sure that you're catching on to what I'm saying. So... Um, everyone out there thunderously applaud. Welcome Jason to the stage as we want to thank him and hand this off to him. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Hannah! Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can't say anything and I can't shake your hand. You don't have a microphone. They can't hear you. But this is Jason. He has been working for us. We're so thankful for him. God bless you, Jason. Thank Thank you.